Turning now to the Word of God in the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Uh, and we're going to be reading from verse 11. This is on page 12,009 of the Church Bibles. And this is uh, Ben's sermon passage for this morning. Luke chapter 11, uh, Luke chapter 19, I beg your pardon. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also shall be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten meters. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king to reign over them and slay them before me. Amen. And may God add his blessing to these readings from his word. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, your word is swift and powerful. It is living by your spirit, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the very depths of our hearts and lives. And so, Lord, we pray. May we sit under its searching gaze and may we remember that Christ is amongst us, speaking to us by this word. Lord, May both myself as preacher and all of us as hearers uh, sit under its authority and receive it not only with our ears but with our hearts and return a harvest of thanksgiving and of faith and of service to you. And we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come today to this famous parable that Jesus uh, taught to the crowds and to his disciples just on the eve of his entry into Jerusalem. 
And those of you that have been at our midweek Bible studies, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke all of this year. And so we did this just recently, uh, maybe a month ago or so, we looked at this passage of um, Jesus telling this parable about a nobleman leaving his servants behind with a sum of money each, commanding them to be faithful to him even as he went away to get his kingdom. Now, if you had been following through on the story of Luke to this point, you've seen this steady progress he makes to Jerusalem over many, many chapters. And what does he show himself to be there? He shows himself to be the the one who saves the lost. Think of the parables he taught, like the lost coin and the lost sheep and the prodigal son. Just before he told this parable, he showed that, didn't he, when he uh, raised up his eyes into the sycamore tree and told a very short tax collector up there, Zacchaeus, to come down because he was going to visit him that day. And salvation came to Zacchaeus' house. His life was transformed by the powerful royal touch of the word of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Think about the way in which in so many ways, yes, Jesus comes across as a different sort of king, not a king with swords and armies and taxes, but a king with grace and truth, with power, yes, but power to heal and power to teach. So he comes across as a different king, but a king nevertheless. So what would you expect then? What would you expect when a king great as David, greater than David, was about to come to Jerusalem. If you were one of his disciples watching all of this, thinking about how Jesus showed at every point that he was God's chosen Messiah, well, what would you be expecting? Here we are, the royal city. He is great David's greater son, about to go through the gates. Surely now we will see the kingdom revealed in all its glory. Surely now. Heaven will come upon earth. If such great things can be done in Galilee, if such wonderful truths and signs of power and healing can be done in Jericho and on the road to Jerusalem, what will be done in David's city? What wonderful things we look ahead to. You can imagine all the Psalms going through their minds. I rejoice when they said to me, go up to the house of the Lord. Go up to Jerusalem, Psalm 122, and all those other Psalms as well. Here we have, surely, the beginnings of the glory of David restored. But what does Jesus do instead? What does he do? He tells this story. He tells this story of delay, of absence of the need to be grittily faithful amid disappointment and hostility, surrounded by enemies on all sides. That's the story he tells, isn't it? And that's the story he tells in this parable, the parable of the ten pounds or the ten minas, depending on, what you, uh, on, what, on the translation that you use. In a sense, what do we have here? We have a king who leaves. 
whose kingdom does not seem to come in its fullness. And his servants are left behind, not as triumphal governors, but more like resistance fighters, if you like, with the encroaching dark all around. We have this parable told of a nobleman, a great man, who comes from a nation and must go to a far city, must go far off to receive the right to a kingdom. He must leave. And as he leaves, there are two things that are resounding. There is the voice of his command to his servants, and there is the voice of rejection from his fellow citizens. That's the two things we have here, don't we? He must leave instructions to his faithful servants, to his own household, and he leaves each of them a sum of money. We'll go back to what that is later. He leaves to each of them a sum of money and a command to be fruitful and productive with that money until he returns. But then as he leaves... The messages come from the rest of the nation, from the rest of the citizens. We will not have this man be king over us. It's a striking story to tell at such a point, isn't it? There's Jesus about to enter Jerusalem and this is what he tells. Striking story. What makes it even more surprising is that something like this happened in Judea about 30 years earlier than when Jesus told this parable. Isn't that amazing that Jesus, far from showing all the glory of a great Davidic king, actually tells the story of a hated king. And he was able to draw on what had happened in Judea a generation earlier. Now you would remember, wouldn't you, we're coming up to Christmas time and you would remember from the stories of Christmas that we have there Jesus as a baby and we have the wise men coming from the east and they come to Jerusalem trying to find this king they want to give honor to and they go to the court don't they of King Herod King Herod and he's a wicked king isn't he who slaughters the infants of Bethlehem in an attempt to get rid of this future king well Herod died shortly thereafter and one of his sons Archelaus went to Rome to seek permission to be king. Now that tells you something about what Israel or Judea was like at that time. The Romans are in control of the world. There are no truly independent kings on the borders of that empire. The Jews had long, uh, several generations earlier lost any real independence. And the Romans were happy to have puppet kings in place, client kings like Herod and his sons. He was happy to have people like them in place to keep the peace so long as they knew that all their true power came from Rome. Isn't that amazing that Jesus would use, in many ways, a very humiliating story to talk about himself and the surprising nature of his kingdom? Anyway, Archelaus went to Rome But there were messages sent by the rest of the Jews to Caesar saying, we don't want this man to be our king. He was hated by the Jews because he was repressive and cruel. He slaughtered 3,000 Pharisees one year at Passover time. 
He was a ruthless ruler. Paranoid, just like his father, who slaughtered all those infants in Bethlehem. That's the sort of world that they were living in. And we have this template of Archelaus, and in the end, Caesar only let him to be a sort of subsidiary king, a minor king called an ethnarch, because he didn't trust him. And in the end, ultimately, his kingdom was taken away. But we have this story of Archelaus. And Jesus takes that story and he makes a parable himself out of, for himself out of it. And we see here Jesus. He is the nobleman in the story, isn't he? He is the nobleman who instead of coming into his glory when he comes in Jerusalem, will instead depart. And he will leave his disciples behind. And his disciples must be faithful while he is away. And they will be surrounded on all sides by those who refuse the rule of Jesus and refuse Jesus as king. And so uh, they are called to be faithful in the meantime. Now, obviously, Jesus was no Archelaus. Jesus was not cruel and paranoid. Jesus was not grasping for power. He's the true and righteous king. But he had to leave. And his kingdom would not yet come in its fullness until he returned. And what are we to be? We are to be those who are faithful in the meantime with what he has given us. So that then causes us to think about what Jesus has given us. And we see in this parable, it's called a mina. A mina. Now, what was a mina? It was basically a pound of silver. So, not a bad sum of money, but not massive either. A mina was worth around about three months' wages. So, more in the lines of a healthy annual bonus rather than a salary for a year. Maybe what you might get back on a tax return. A, a suitable son of money, but it's not going to change the world. And that's where this parable is a little bit different to another parable that you probably know well that seems very similar. But it's a little bit different. And that's the parable of the talents that you have in Matthew's gospel. And you might remember that talent, that parable where the ruler left different amounts with three different servants. He left one talent with one servant, three talents with another, and five talents with another. Now, a talent is a massive sum of money. One talent was equal to 20 years' wages. No one of Jesus' listeners would ever have seen a talent it's essentially equivalent to a lifetime's earnings when you think about the life expectancy of most ordinary workers. That's how much a talent was. So, it's a little bit like a minnow might get you a deposit for a house out in Pakenham and a talent might just get you a deposit, might just get you a deposit for a house here in South Yarra. But there's a big difference between the two. And it changes the focus, doesn't it? 
Because when we think about the different talents and the sheer amount of it, we're thinking we've been given gifts and each of us have different gifts and we've got to use them for God's service. That's what the parable of the talents really drives home to us. We've got to use the gifts that God has given us for his service. We've got to be faithful in those gifts. But this parable, the parable of the ten minas, I think is a little bit different. You've got a mina. That's all you've got. You've got a mission. Be faithful. It's not how wonderfully gifted you are. We're all the same before God. We've all got our deposit. Will we be firm? Will we be loyal? Will we hold on to our resolution to follow our Lord through thick and thin? Because the citizens don't want him. The nation around are rejecting him. Will we reject him too? Will we hide our loyalty? Will we cover our faith? Or will we press on? Will we use just what we have, what he has given us, as we seek to be faithful? Now, the parables are similar, but I would say the talents, the parable of the talents is more about faithful in giftedness. Whereas the parable of the ten minas is faithfulness in trial. Loyalty to Christ, come thick or thin, are we loyal to him? But you notice, as you look at this parable, that most of the parable here addresses the time when, Jesus, when the nobleman came back, and that's Jesus. Isn't it interesting that most of the parable is told from the perspective of when he returns? Now, this parable and others of Jesus' parables are a little bit like good fairy tales, aren't they? Or good jokes where there's always three parts to it. You know, Goldilocks or uh, the three little pigs and so on. You have three parts to the story and so you have here. But you know, in those stories, the story of each one is told one after the other, isn't it? Well, we don't have any record of this servant doing this and the other servant doing that and the third servant doing this. We don't have any record of that. We don't hear of the other seven servants either because there were ten there originally. It all comes down to the day when the nobleman returns. It all comes down to the day when Christ comes back to judge. And it's in the light of that that we see the rest of the parable. That's striking too, isn't it? There's a lesson in there already for us, isn't there? Because what does faithfulness to you look like right now? What does faithfulness in the Christian life for us look like right now? Often it simply looks like, how do I get through the next hour or day or week with all the pressures of it, with all the threats, with all the promises, with all the anxieties, but also with all the opportunities and we judge what our Christian life should look like, don't we? Just in the hurly-burly of ordinary life. And sometimes some things seem more important and sometimes we forget our faith altogether. And things that we think are really important now, one day don't seem very important at all. And I'm not just talking about our personal lives, I'm talking about our Christian lives, our congregation's life even. Things that seem so important and and stressful now will one day seem very small. 
Because all things are to be judged, not in the light of today, are they? But in the light of Christ's return. And that's striking in this parable, isn't it? How will faithfulness be dealt with first? How will faithfulness be viewed? It is viewed in the searching light of Christ's return. We need, I often pray this, may I judge today by that great day when he comes back. And not by just what's bugging me today. May I learn day by day to look at today in the light of the great day when Christ returns. It's a clarifying event, isn't it? The return of Jesus. It shows things as they really are. It shows things as they should be. And we must judge things according to that. And so in the light of that, we see three groups revealed, don't we? We see the faithful servants. We see the unfaithful servant. And then we see the unbelieving rebels as well. The faithful servants, the unbelieving servant, and then the unbelieving rebels too. So let's go back to these faithful servants. There's two of them, aren't there? The Lord returns. He calls the first servant, and the first servant comes and says, your mina has earned ten minas, and he's given rule over ten cities in the kingdom. And then the next one comes, and he has, his mina has earned five minas, and he's given rule over five cities. So what do you think these minas represent? It's tempting, as I said earlier, to think of them as the various giftings that God gave us. But the fact that it's a smaller sum and the fact that it's the same for everybody makes me think that actually it's just to do with our living connection with our Lord. I can look out over this congregation and I can see people of different gifts, of teaching and administration, of evangelism or of wonderful witness to the wonders of the transforming work of Christ in your workplace and in your families and all the rest. But what do I see most and most importantly across us all? You all have, I hope, faith in Christ. You all share in a common hope in Christ. And you're all growing in a love for him and for each other. Faith, hope, and love. There could be all sorts of other things I could pour into this, but let's stick with those three. Faith, hope, and love. We are called to be productive with these things, aren't we? Not just to take them for granted, but surrounded by those who reject the rule of Christ, we are to show faith, faith that perseveres to the end. The sort of faith that you see, for example, in that long list of heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Not living by what they see, but by the one in whom they put their faith. Not thinking, well, because the whole nation seems to be rejecting the rule of our king, there's no use, there's no hope, there's no future. But stepping forward in faith. 
grounding their faith not upon their own emotions or upon what they see, but upon the sure and certain promises of God in Christ. Faith. Are we putting that to work? Faith. But then hope as well. Not just feeling hopeful. I hope it's going to sunny, be sunny later on or I hope it won't rain too much this week. But a hope that rejoices in hope of the glory of God. A hope found not in hopefulness but in the one who is sure and certain. Who underscores our hope by his own blood and by his resurrection from the dead. A sure and certain hope bought for us and given to us by the Spirit. By which we know that the days we now go through will not be the end. But the days and the years are numbered according to the tale of God and not by us. And that he has treasured up his great day when all will be revealed. And not a single thing can stop that day coming. And all the glorious hope of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a sure and certain hope we've been given. Will we live in the light of that? We're surrounded in so many ways by a hopeless culture, aren't we? I'm not saying hopeless in the sense of just useless or mediocre. Hopeless. Despair surrounds us on every side. But we are to be a people of hope. Are we putting that to practice? Are we taking that deposit of hope that Christ has left us when he must go away? Are we living by that hope to that day when he returns? And then love as well. Isn't it wonderful the teaching of love that Jesus gave in John's gospel? You know that in the upper room before he was betrayed and led away to death. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Why would he say such a thing? Because he was leaving. That's why he spoke in that way. To leave a testimony for them and a promise and an assurance that their living with Christ is a living hope, is a living reality because they love. And it is Christ's love in us that drives us to love one another and to love him. Are we putting that love to work? Are we showing that love? Know that also the wonderful thing that is revealed on that great day, it's a, it's a revelation, isn't it? You know, when Christ returns, it's literally a revelation. The curtains are pulled back. I always remember that as a boy watching the old Wizard of Oz film, you know, the old one with the big scary wizard, and then you pull the curtains back and there's this little old man, isn't there, pulling the levers. But isn't it wonderful to think that it's totally the other way round on Revelation? Here we are, we think our faith is often a weak and pitiful thing. And the whole culture seems to have gone out like a great tide has gone out. And it feels so weak and small and ignoble and powerless and foolish. But the curtains are rolled back, aren't they? The curtains are pulled back. And we see the glory of our king. And what do we see? We see that he is at work in us in all of those long years of absence. Because what do the servants say here? Look at it. It's very clear what they say here. Isn't it wonderful? This is different to the parable of the talents. What do they say? They say, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. 
Your mina has earned five minas. It's your work. All along when we were grittily holding on by our fingernails and as we were striving to keep your memory alive and as we were seeking to be faithful to you even though all of your fellow citizens wanted you gone and away and dead. In all of that time when things seemed beyond redemption, your men did this work. You have been with us all along. It's your spirit enlivening us, driving us on. That's what they realized at that great day of revelation. And that's what you may know too. And even if you do not see that today, there will be a day when you will see it. And you will know that your Lord has been faithful to you and has preserved you and kept you and kept the light of faith and hope and love alight in you. And on that day of revelation, all the rewards will seem to astound us. There seems to be no relation, is there? Made 10 minas here, it's a couple of years' wages, and then I get 10 cities. I made five here, I get five cities. I don't think this is primarily talking about different rewards in heaven, but it is showing that heaven is far beyond all that we can imagine. And it's all by God's grace. There is no logical, there is no logical reason why we should receive such wonderful honors and such wonderful privileges, such an abounding flowing out of rewarding grace from God. There's no reason other than that the Lord loves faithfulness and he loves his own and he takes us to himself and he pours all his blessings on us. And so may we rejoice. It's not about measuring the five versus the ten versus the two or the one. But sitting back in wonder at all that God has promised for us. And to know that once again we are not to judge our lives now by the wonders of the future. That's That's the great yardstick is God's abounding grace to us. Ready to be revealed on that last day. And this is what we need, isn't it? As we labour on, as resistance fighters, left behind, if you like. Given our tools of faith and love and hope for now, but ready to be revealed in their fullness one day. And I pray that that will be true for each and every one of us. But there is a warning here too, isn't there? There is unfaithful servants too. Notice here, the unfaithful servant sees only the threat and not the promise of the gospel. Because Jesus did say hard things, didn't he? He said tough things at times. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, can, you, are, you have no part in me. Unless you take your eye out that offends, you, can, you will end up in hellfire. You know, uh, The one that offends my little ones a better a millstone was hung around his neck and to be cast into the sea. Jesus said severe things. Jesus said stern things. And without faith we do not see beyond those things sometimes to see the true sweet heart of the gospel. 
And this unfaithful servant did not have faith in the wonders of the gospel. This unfaithful servant could only see the outer shell and it seemed hard to him. And from that he drew an excuse to judge things by what he saw and to judge things by the hardness of some of his Lord's words. And so sadly, the judgment of the Lord fell upon him. But there is a note of solemn warning in this for us, isn't there? Because this unfaithful servant received a mina, like everybody else. He received the ministry of God's word to him. He received the same promises that we all receive. He was exposed to the same hope of glory that we were all exposed to. He was called to the life of faith that we are called to. And yet he took these things and in them he did not find that the Lord is good, but that the Lord is hard. He did not taste and see that the Lord is good, but he found the gospel a bitter thing. And so he retreated from it. He was still on the outside a servant of his Lord, but he kept himself away from true faith. And it produced no fruit in him. No perseverance. No faithfulness in little things, in difficult times, in dark times. But rather he was faithless. That's a solemn warning to us, isn't it? Jesus didn't speak this warning just to the general crowds. He spoke it to his disciples. The ones he's leaving behind to be a witness to him until he returns. And I pray and trust and hope that there is no unfaithful servant here. You know, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to be able to come into church and to hear God's word preached and to hear the gospel proclaimed and to be able to pray to God together with his people and to sing his praises together with all these people. These are wonderful, wonderful things. But they bring responsibility too, don't they? They bring a moment of decision, don't they? What are you going to do with all of this? What are you going to do with this? Is it just going to be play acting? Is it just going to be a form? Or are we going to press on and into Christ? Are we going to put our faith entirely on him and then believe till the end? Hope till the end? Love till the end? For the end will reveal all, won't they? And if the rewards of God are beyond comprehension, so are his judgments. Notice here, even in the parable, there's shock, isn't there? When he says, take the mina away from the one who was faithless and give it to the one who has ten. For the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he also says there, you know, everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And there's shock from the servants, aren't they? They say, but the other one's got ten. 
Like even in the story, they're shocked. Do not judge the judgments of God by what you think they might be now. The great day is overwhelming in both ways, both in reward and in judgment. Do not think you can put God in a box now and judge him by your standards of what you think is proportionate. For God's wrath comes as an overwhelming tide on all those who will not put their trust in Christ. I'm not saying that out of joy. I'm not saying that out of triumph. I'm pleading that this is true. And Jesus himself has left us a witness from his word that this is true. And to underscore the point, there is a third group left here too, isn't there? A third group. And these are all those citizens out there that did not receive their Lord. Who were out and out rebels. And we see here the sternness of Christ's judgment. He asks for them to be brought before him and slain. Judgment is terrible for the hypocrite. But you can't say, I've got a family friend who, a a member of my family who always says, well, I might have done the wrong thing, but at least I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not saying I'm going to do one thing and then do different something else. I'm open and out about it all. But that's no, that's no shield here, isn't it? Hypocrisy is a terrible, terrible sin, but so is outward rebellion. We see here who our Lord and Saviour is. You know, we've got to have a full view of who Jesus is, don't we? He is gentle and lowly. He is the one who receives the repentant sinner. He, he cleanses us. He takes the little children to himself. But he also kicks over the tables of the money changers. And he rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees. Our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, is not a comfortable character. He's not a safe Saviour. He came as a humble servant. He will come again as the exalted judge. And let us never forget that. Let us never just have half the jigsaw puzzle of who Jesus is. Taking out all the pieces we don't particularly like. But let us see him for his glorious and beautiful and terrible fullness. As the ancient of days, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And let us come in trust to him. Let us be faithful servants. Just as I close, can I just say a couple of words about us here as South Yarra at this time? Look out over a congregation dear to my heart. And you have gone as a congregation through some very difficult years. And I know a number of you here have had deep personal things you've had to go through as well and are going through right now. Then there was a fire. Then there was a lockdown. Then there's been a long vacancy with many pressures, many occasions where we could fall out with each other if if, if we didn't keep ourselves back. And I want you to think about all of that in the light of this parable. Christ has still left you a pound each, a minna each. He's not left you without witness. He's not left you without his sustaining grace and strength. We are not to judge things by today. 
We're not to judge things by the, the current property matters we might deal with today or tomorrow or next year. We are a precious congregation of Christ's people and he loves us. And he wants us to be faithful even when things might look difficult. And he wants us to continue on in that faithfulness. And he will do it, won't he? He is the one that will nourish your faith and your hope and your love at this time. And so we may rejoice. Let me leave that with you. Let us pray. Most gracious, merciful Father, look upon us with your tender love, we pray. Keep us faithful, we pray. In a time of great difficulties at times, nevertheless, may we be faithful and that we would not be fruitless or despise your wonderful gifts to us, but use them to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.